0: The fundamental problem here is that I think South Korea wants uh, effective guarantees from the United States about what would happen if North Korea uh, did X, like if North Korea used nuclear weapons, uh, will the US use nuclear weapons in response?
1: Welcome to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. I'm Chris Park from Johns Hopkins SAIS, and I'm joined by my friend Julia. Last year, North Korea conducted a record number of ballistic missile tests, and may conduct another nuclear test this year. These developments have aggravated South Korea's concern about U.S. extended deterrence commitments. Onkid Panda joins us today for a timely discussion, just a week before South Korean President Yoon Song yeol is set to arrive in Washington for a state visit. We discussed the North Korea challenge in 2023 and strengthening U.S. extended deterrence. Ankit Panda is a Stanton Senior Fellow in the Nuclear Policy Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. An expert on the Asia Pacific region, his research interests range nuclear strategy, arms control, missile defense, nonproliferation, emerging technologies, and U.S. extended deterrence. He is the author of Kim Jong-un and the Bomb, Survival and Deterrence in North Korea. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Hopkins podcast on foreign affairs. Hi, Ankit. Thank you so much for joining us for the conversation today. Thanks for having me. North Korea conducted its first nuclear test in 2006, and there, of course, is a long history of diplomatic efforts to denuclearize North Korea. And the latest high-profile effort, the summit, I guess, between Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump, failed to slow down or end North Korea's nuclear weapons program. I guess to start off our conversation today, could you give us a sense of where the North Korean nuclear program stands today?
0: Sure. So um, today, North Korea is a full-fledged, rapidly diversifying and quite capable uh, nuclear-armed state. They have, over a number of decades, uh, invested considerably in developing uh, delivery systems, primarily ballistic missiles, but increasingly cruise missiles for nuclear weapons delivery roles. They have carried out six nuclear tests to date, which have given them sufficient scientific uh, knowledge and expertise about. Uh, miniaturizing nuclear explosive devices for use in warheads, and today nuclear weapons represent the cornerstone of North Korea's national defense strategy. Effectively, for a country like North Korea that is resource constrained and is quite aware of its conventional military shortcomings vis-a-vis the much better-resourced and uh, qualitatively superior U.S.-South Korea alliance, nuclear weapons uh, become an important offset for the North Koreans, precisely because they don't have the conventional capabilities that they would need to prevail or even stay in a fight with the United States and South Korea. They see nuclear weapons as a means of deterring uh, the U.S. and South Korea from taking large-scale military action against North Korea's territory for a variety of ends, the primary purpose being, of course, securing the Kim. Regime against threats of regime change from the outside. There's some chatter
1: that North Korea um, might be queuing up for another nuclear test this year. Um, I I guess this conversation really started uh, last year. How credible are these concerns that Kim Jong un might be teeing up another nuclear test in 2023?
0: I think I think fairly credible. Um, we've seen uh, North Korea's uh, only known nuclear test site, the uh, the punggye nuclear test site, which North Korea first began setting up uh, in the nineteen nineties. Actually, long before they ever tested a nuclear weapon, uh, that nuclear test site was um, partially dismantled in twenty eighteen, right before the first U.S. North Korea summit uh, in Singapore that year. Uh, last year, around uh, around this time, I think around March twenty twenty two, we saw the test site um, restored to what appeared to be a serviceable condition for additional nuclear testing. We've also seen reports from South Korean and US intelligence that both countries have been expecting a nuclear test for some time. Uh, The other piece of evidence here is North Korea's design ambitions for its nuclear weapons program. Uh, Kim Jong-un in January 2021 at the Eighth Party Congress of the Workers' Party uh, was quite clear that he wanted to see tactical nuclear weapons developed. Uh, And just last month, he actually visited the Nuclear Weapons Institute in North Korea, which is the bureaucratic body charged with the development, maintenance, and storage of nuclear warheads in North Korea. Uh, And he viewed what appeared to be a serially produced range of um compact nuclear warheads that appeared to be small enough for mounting on many of the new tactical nuclear weapons delivery systems that North Korea is developing. So, it seems like they would want to test that warhead uh, in a real full yield uh, underground nuclear test. Now, when they will do that I think is an open question. Um like you said, we've been uh you know, journalists have been asking me this question for over a year now and I keep saying you know, we have strategic warning, but not tactical warning, i.e. we know that North Korea will conduct another nuclear test, but we don't have a good sense of when that will happen. And we probably won't get too much warning before that test happens, because uh, simply given the nature of the nuclear test site and what North Korea would have to do to set it up, uh, it's very likely that Kim Jong-un gives the order, and within 24 to 36 hours, um, North Korea's scientists, technicians have Uh, made the sufficient preparations uh, to carry out the test. So it's quite possible that one day we'll simply um, be sitting down for dinner here on the East Coast or or waking up in the morning to uh, news of a man-made underground explosion at Pungiri that will then turn out to be North Korea's seventh nuclear test.
1: Well, for your sake and uh, some of the journalists covering this issue here from Washington, I do hope, um, you know, well, not hope, but uh, I I know there is a a large time difference between Pyongyang and uh, Washington. So, you know, hopefully it's not in the middle of the night you're waking up to you know respond to a nuclear test, which hopefully, again, does not happen. But an area that North Korea did test a lot in last year in 2022 was its ballistic missile program. And you alluded to this earlier in your responses. Um, But North Korea tested a record number of ballistic missiles in uh, 2022. I'm wondering, what do these tests seek to achieve? And I guess, why should we be concerned about these tests?
0: Absolutely. I mean, um, so, you know, the first thing I would say here is actually that... um, what i have been telling a lot of folks lately is that uh, we need to start becoming more comfortable with dropping the word test from how we describe most ballistic missile launches in north korea because the reality is that uh, of the record number of ballistic missiles launched in 2022 and so far in 2023 uh, the vast majority have not been tests and and what do i mean by that Uh, north korea is not carrying out these launches to test, evaluate uh, the the performance of its missiles. It it knows these missiles work. Uh, It has tested them in the past. What it is doing now is it is carrying out large-scale operational exercises, i.e., the North Koreans are rehearsing for the use of tactical nuclear weapons against South Korea and the United States, and they've been very open about that. Uh, They've also tried to position these exercises as a parallel reciprocal action to exercises and shows of reassurance by the United States for South Korea. So, that is, uh, I think, part and parcel of North Korea's ongoing strategy of demonstrating that its deterrent capabilities are credible, are robust, are being sufficiently maintained, uh, and that the KPA, the Korean People's Army, Um, is maintaining readiness to use these capabilities because deterrence fundamentally hinges on the credibility of a capability at hand. So it isn't sufficient for North Korea to simply flight test missiles and demonstrate that it's, you know, the missile boosters work, guidance systems work. Uh, They used to do this in the past. This was primarily the focus of North Korea's um, missile-focused propaganda efforts before 2017. But since 2017, uh, slowly since 2017, but really 2021, 2022, I think, is things where um, things really pick up in this regard, Uh, North Korea is demonstrating that they are well rehearsed uh, for a conflict, uh, including a conflict that will involve the use of nuclear weapons.
2: Ankit, I wanted to bring up the announcement last year from North Korea when when North Korea announced conditions under which it would resort to the use of nuclear weapons and highlight that one of which was that if a conventional preemptive strike appeared imminent against North Korea, um, it would would use its nuclear weapons. Now, is this an explicit threat of first use of nuclear weapons from North Korea? And does it mark a shift in North Korea's nuclear weapons policy?
0: Yeah, so, um, you know, the answers to those questions are uh, yes and no, uh, in that this is not a shift, uh, it's not anything new. Uh, What is new, of course, is the level of detail that North Korea provided with the updated nuclear law in september 2022 Um, north korea has always reserved the right to use nuclear weapons first uh, right i don't describe it as a first use policy but they but they certainly have never shied away from the idea that if they detected an imminent sign of an invasion or a regime change campaign against their territory or their interests that they would reserve the right to use nuclear weapons if they saw fit um and and this goes back several decades. I mean, the North Koreans have spent considerable amounts of time studying how the United States prosecutes expeditionary warfare. Uh, they, in particular, gave a lot of attention to uh, the uh, the first Gulf War, the US invasion of Iraq in 2003, uh, and what they observe in, in, in both of those examples is that the United States will mass forces on the border of whichever state it might be trying to carry out that large-scale action against. So on the Korean Peninsula, um, part of the reason the North Koreans I think react the way they do to military exercises to deployments of strategic assets is because they worry about force massing uh, they don't want the United States to bring over a ton of hardware across the Pacific Ocean that could then be used as part of a large-scale military campaign and uh, why they make these kinds of statements that if they detect any imminent signs of a conventional invasion, they will use nuclear weapons is because they want to strike first and degrade the ability of the United States and its allies to carry out conventional military operations as they would see fit. Uh, and so that has been the longstanding theory behind North Korea's um development and uh, basically how North Korea thinks about the first use of nuclear weapons serving its strategic goals. Uh, And then, um, of course, the longer range systems, the ICBMs, um, other systems that would be capable of retaliating against cities like Seoul and Tokyo and so on, are what North Korea would likely uh, keep in reserve effectively uh, to... um, communicate after it had already used nuclear weapons first that any further uh, retaliatory action by the U.S. and its allies, including possible nuclear retaliation, would result in all-out nuclear attacks by North Korea against uh, so-called counter-value targets, uh, population centers uh, in the United States and um, in the uh, territory of South Korea and Japan. Uh, so I know it's pretty grim stuff, but that is the essence of North Korean nuclear strategy. Uh, and I think um, the detail we got with the nuclear law last year uh, you know the way i like to sort of talk about those five conditions they outlined is that those conditions were so broad uh, that basically what the north koreans were saying is that they would um, you know find the means to justify nuclear use under uh, basically any scenario in a conflict that if they felt that their interests were being threatened and nuclear weapons were going to be the way out for kim jong-un that he would use nuclear weapons
2: And speaking of um, U.S. allies, South Korea, for one, whose capital, Seoul, is less than 50 miles from the DMZ, does not actually have nuclear weapons. So can you describe or tell our listeners a little bit about how South Korea has deterred North Korea from using nuclear weapons?
0: Yeah, sure. So... um... You know, when we're talking about the use of nuclear weapons on the Korean Peninsula by North Korea, we're talking about a relatively um, relatively short history, right? You can go back to October 2006, but depending on you know, your assessment of when North Korea successfully miniaturized nuclear weapons for mounting on ballistic missiles, it might even be less time than that. 2016, 2017 uh, is when we began to get indicators from at least the US intelligence community that North Korea had acquired that capability. Um, the basic, the the basic contour of deterrence on the Korean peninsula uh, has really been unchanged since the armistice of 1953, which is that South Korea relies on its alliance with the United States to convey to North Korea that it will have the ability with its ally, the United States, to bring uh, effective and overwhelming responses to anything that North Korea does uh, in excess of sort of limited um, Limited military provocations, uh, and of course, when I say limited provocations, I'm talking still about serious incidents. Uh, the The twin incidents in 2010, the sinking of the Chonanam, which resulted in the death of some 40 uh, Republic of Korea Navy sailors, uh, and the shelling of Yongpyong Island that year, uh, sort of fall into that category. Um, But deterrence hinges, just as it does for North Korea, on demonstrating uh, that the alliance has a credible set of capabilities to cope with a range of contingencies from North Korea. So for South Korea, uh, since at least uh, the Lee Myung-bak presidency, uh, Lee bak was uh, the president of South Korea during those um, incidents in 2010, uh, but particularly since uh, the Park Geun-hye administration, um, Lee's um, conservative successor, uh, who of course didn't finish her term, was impeached, uh, South Korea began investing considerably in a robust suite of conventional deterrence capabilities to demonstrate to North Korea... That uh, even if North Korea resorted to the use of nuclear weapons, uh, South Korea with conventional capabilities uh, could still punish North Korea, could still deny North Korea the benefits of using nuclear weapons through preemptive strikes and missile defenses. Uh, And that continues to basically be um, Seoul's broader approach to uh, responding to North Korea. And then for the alliance writ large, uh, there are ongoing efforts uh, to uh, revisit operational war plans, accounting for the possibility that the alliance will have to operate in an environment where nuclear weapons will have been used, uh, and, and that presents new planning uh, considerations. And then finally, at the highest end of um, deterrence, uh, the alliance does rely on the nuclear capabilities of the United States. Uh, and of course, uh, in South Korea right now, you know, I think we have to be open and acknowledge that there is anxiety over uh, this idea that the United States' nuclear weapons are an important component of South Korea's defense. And so there is a prominent debate uh, in South Korea, particularly among strategic elites, uh, sometimes that seeps into government, uh, that South Korea needs nuclear weapons of its own. This is not a new problem for US alliances. It is a familiar problem from the Cold War. It is not a problem that the US typically faced with its allies in the post-Cold War era. Uh, But this is now uh, part of the deliberations that are taking place uh, in South Korea. Uh, Of course, we're looking at a summit meeting later this month between President Biden and President Yoon. That will be, I think, a moment for the two countries to demonstrate that they stand shoulder to shoulder, that US extended deterrence um, for South Korea uh, is robust and that South Korea believes it to be robust. Uh, But nevertheless, this broader context, I think, uh, is an important part of the picture right now.
1: So far in our conversation, we've discussed North Korean nuclear weapons and ballistic missile program, the U.S.-South Korea alliance to respond to a range of uh, North Korea contingencies, and of course, just now, the role of U.S. extended deterrence. And this is where I want to turn to um, the contemporary issues. You know, South Korean President Yoon Song-yeol is nearing his first year in office. As you said, the state visit is coming uh, coming up, um, where he, uh, he'll be meeting President Biden for I guess, the second or third time now. And the UN government, as you said, has been vocally expressing concern about the credibility of U.S. extended deterrence. I'm wondering, if the, I'm wondering about the timing of the, uh, this, uh, this concern surfacing. Why has this issue emerged now as a pressing national security concern for South Korea?
0: Sure. So, I think the first thing uh, to say is that South Korea's threat environment has objectively deteriorated uh, in the last uh, two to three years, and I think it's important as Americans, especially, to recognize that uh, because you know things are not the same as they were in Northeast Asia uh, in 2017 and 2019 when the Trump Kim summits, um, uh, you know, wrapped up. Uh, so that, I think, is a big part of this. Um, and especially the idea that North Korea has openly begun talking about tactical nuclear weapons and the deployment of tactical nuclear weapons. For the longest time, uh, it was not uncommon for Americans to hear the idea in Seoul, an idea that I personally never agreed with, but the idea that Kim Jong-un would actually not use nuclear weapons against South Korea, that he was primarily pursuing nuclear weapons to hold at risk targets in Japan and the, homeland, um, and the U.S. homeland and other U.S. territories. But for South Korea, North Korea would primarily rely on conventional weapons. So that has been put to rest now with Kim Jong Un openly, you know, Kim has multiple times now stood next to maps of South Korea, talking about tactical nuclear weapons. I mean, there's absolutely no more subtlety uh, to this idea that South Korea would be spared nuclear attack. Uh, and so, this, of course, is distressing if you live in Seoul, and and rightfully so. Uh, you know, nobody wants to uh, openly, of course, accept that their own country will be uh, at at risk of nuclear attacks, and uh, in the case that deterrence were, were to fail. Um, and so. The idea that U.S. nuclear weapons are part of deterring Kim Jong-un from nuclear use, uh, that predates Kim's pursuit of tactical nuclear weapons. But the concern, uh, as, you, as you hinted, uh, is about the anxiety that the United States might not deliver on the commitments that are so often made in alliance consultations, that you know, the, the two countries stand shoulder to shoulder, that the alliance is ironclad. Uh, the fundamental problem here, is that I think South Korea wants uh, effective guarantees from the United States about what would happen if North Korea uh, did X, like if North Korea used nuclear weapons, uh, will the U.S. use nuclear weapons in response? Um, and you know, I don't want to get too much into the intricacies of U.S. nuclear policy, but. Effectively, the United States cannot offer a blanket assurance, uh, not just to South Korea, but to any of our allies, that the U.S. would use nuclear weapons if a certain set of conditions are met. Uh, And the reasons for that, I think, primarily have to do with um, a broader practice of calculated ambiguity in how Americans talk about our nuclear strategy. We don't like to give our adversaries a clear idea of what thresholds would have to be crossed uh, in order to bring a nuclear response, uh, lest it encourage, you know, pushing right up to that threshold and not actually crossing it. Um, There's also the matter that uh, in the American system, the president has sole authority to authorize nuclear use. The president is presented with a range of options for nuclear use, but the president is not obliged to rely on any of those options if he or she chooses not to. Uh, And there is nobody uh, in the American system, and certainly outside of the United States, that can compel the president of the United States to use nuclear weapons. So these issues, um, I think, are... I don't see these as inhibitors to robust deterrence, but they are, I think, an inhibitor to the United States delivering to South Korea the kind of nuclear reassurance signals that Seoul is currently seeking. Um, So there's been ways to work around this problem, uh, and this is practically what the allies have been doing. So there's been talk about joint planning, information sharing. Uh, A big area of demand uh, has been uh, nuclear planning consultations, uh, where there is a view in Seoul that... Uh, the United States uh, should be more forthcoming with the kinds of insight it gives its South Korean partners uh, on its own nuclear operations, similar to what happens in NATO. Although I should also clarify here that what the NATO nuclear planning group does uh, is not particularly well understood. Um, and you know the reasons for that are, again, complex. I think big part of the reason is that the NATO nuclear planning group doesn't actually do nuclear planning in the traditional sense, uh, so it's not a very well-named body. But uh, but you know this is, again, part of the conversations that are happening in the alliance. So these demand signals from South Korea for the United States to offer greater clarity, greater insight, uh, and potentially greater South Korean involvement into American nuclear planning and processes are the major hinge point right now and of course in parallel to all this you have the implicit threat, I would say, that's lingering in the background uh, of South Korea going nuclear uh, in in the long term. Uh, and this has, you know, this is, again, an old problem with extended deterrence. It was the Charles de Gaulle problem uh, in, in, you know, in the late 50s, early 60s, when France simply didn't find it credible that the United States would be willing to risk New York for Paris when the Soviet Union developed ICBMs. And with North Korea's development of not only uh, ICBMs, which Pyongyang first demonstrated in 2017, but an increasingly more um, credible ICBM force with larger numbers, uh, these fears about so-called decoupling between the U.S. and South Korea uh, are here to stay with us. Uh, and so the task of reassuring South Korea for the United States uh, is becoming more difficult. And I think the the last thing I'll say here is that uh, I think it's important for policymakers in D.C. to recognize that In this objectively deteriorated threat environment and amid these um, really, I think, unprecedented types of debates that are happening in Seoul, the United States can't simply look our allies in the eyes and say that, you know, business as usual will have to go on, that the business of extended deterrence as it took place from, let's say, 1991 to 2020, uh, you know, that about rough 30 year period since the end of the Cold War, that era, I think, has fundamentally come to a close, not just in Northeast Asia, but also in Europe. Uh, And so how the United States uh, reconceives extended deterrence for these new challenges in the 21st century, this objectively deteriorating threat environment, is something that I think Washington needs to give a lot of serious thought to.
1: I wanted to follow up on what you just mentioned about the NATO nuclear planning group. You know, is it that the United States and NATO allies sit around the table, point at different targets for nuclear weapon strikes? What is the NATO Nuclear Planning Group, and I guess why is that not a model uh, that the U.S.-South Korea alliance can adopt?
0: Yeah, sure. So let me let me quote to you directly from NATO what the Nuclear Planning Group does, uh, and then I'll provide a definition of nuclear planning. Uh, right. So, and you know, I think the illustration here is going to be that the NATO Nuclear Planning Group doesn't traditionally do what at least the U.S. military considers to be nuclear planning. So per NATO, the, the nuclear planning group, quote, provides a forum for consultation, collective decision-making, and political control over all aspects of NATO's nuclear mission, including nuclear sharing. Now, I should note here that nuclear sharing is an important difference that the United States has between uh The NATO multilateral alliance, where uh, five countries host American nuclear weapons and have pilots that are certified to deliver those nuclear weapons uh, versus our alliances with South Korea and Japan, where we do not have a nuclear sharing arrangement. There are advocates uh, in Tokyo and Seoul who think that nuclear sharing would be an appropriate solution for the dilemmas we now face in Northeast Asia. But going back to NATO for a second... um, so that definition i just gave you doesn't really talk about you know what you hinted at in your question sitting around a table and kind of pointing at targets in north korea with a stick and saying you know we're gonna put 10 kilotons here 15 kilotons there traditionally that is much closer to what we mean when we talk about nuclear planning uh, which covers the employment of nuclear weapons the operational tasking of certain assets in nato that does happen right because we have the nuclear sharing mission in nato That happens uh, at what's known as SHAPE, which is uh, Supreme Headquarters uh, Allied Powers Europe, which is the military planning body of NATO. And so the five NATO countries that participate in the dual-capable aircraft mission, i.e. the fighters that are certified to deliver American nuclear weapons, uh, are operational assets. So they need to be operationally integrated uh, into um, NATO war plans, let's say, uh, including war plans that would involve potential nuclear use. Um, So this isn't to say that You know, there is no role for uh, additional nuclear planning consultations uh, in Northeast Asia. Um, But I think there's an important difference between what the planning group does in reality and the perception of what the planning group does uh, in at least parts of Seoul and so the kinds of activities that the planning group does i think are actually entirely unobjectionable Uh, and actually a lot of that i think already happens in the us south korea alliance and the us japan alliance in the context of sort of existing dialogues like the uh, extended turn strategy and consultation group the edscg the korea us integrated defense dialogue the kid which just took place this week uh here in dc um and so Maybe bringing that up a level or creating a new dedicated body to discuss nuclear matters would, I think, help address some of these anxieties. Uh, NATO also has a high-level group uh, involved in um, nuclear decision making, which uh, might be a more appropriate model for for these Northeast Asian um, requirements. But you know that difference between um, what's required in Northeast Asia and what NATO does in practice, I think, is important. The the nuclear sharing difference I do want to emphasize, though, uh, is an important distinction between NATO uh, and the Northeast Asian alliances, uh, because we don't share nuclear weapons with South Korea or Japan. Um, that aspect of military operational planning that takes place at shape in the in the European context uh, is simply just not a part of uh, alliance considerations right now in Northeast Asia.
1: Well, so I'm guess I, I I'm guessing what you're getting at is that perhaps short of an explicit guarantee. And, you know, perhaps kind of the nuclear sharing aspect we see in the European alliance context, there will still continue, you know, there will be lingering doubt about the credibility of U.S. extended deterrence in South Korea, and thereby, you know, some of these calls for indigenous nuclear capability or some other policy solution to that. And I'm wondering could, if you could kind of lay out the state of nuclear deterrence debate in South Korea today and how serious are the voices that, you know, say, let's stop relying on U.S. extended deterrence and build our own nuclear weapons.
0: Yeah. So, um, look, I mean, the first thing to say here is that, you know, you're absolutely right that that there is this debate. Uh, but it's also just endemic to the business of extended deterrence, right? Ever since the United States got into extending its own nuclear deterrent to its allies, uh, primarily as a nonproliferation tool, but also as a strategic tool, um, it has had to contend with this idea that allies would not take seriously American commitments to use nuclear weapons in their defense. Uh, It is, of course, epistemically uh, quite a difficult thing, uh, as I I discussed earlier with all of these ambiguities about when the U.S. would use nuclear weapons and under what conditions uh, to assure Allies that uh, those nuclear weapons would be available to them. Uh, So, you know, a a long story short, uh, fears of abandonment by allies, I think, are just a non negotiable component of the extended deterrence business. When times are good, uh, like they were for much of the last 30 years in the aftermath of the Cold War, uh, there weren't too many doubts. You know, we still had extended deterrence dilemmas. The Obama administration, when it retired the uh, sea launched nuclear capable Tomahawk, for instance, faced uh, objections from uh, Japan and to a lesser extent, South Korea, even though those missiles weren't actually deployed on American nuclear submarines at the time. Um, and so what we're facing now, I do think that was meaningfully different uh, in in that the debates in Seoul, uh, the level of public support in Seoul for an indigenous nuclear deterrent has grown. And I think at the core of these debates, uh, and this is painting with a broad brush, right? I mean, South Korea is a vibrant liberal democracy. There are various proponents uh, on all sides of the political spectrum in South Korea who favor nuclear weapons for different reasons. But I think if there is a unifying kind of theory of nuclear armament in South Korea, I think it fundamentally hinges on the idea that only nuclear weapons can deter nuclear use. Uh, And so because North Korea has nuclear weapons, it is threatening to use them first, threatening to use them at a significant scale, um, the only way to deter that will be to convey to Kim Jong-un that nuclear use will result in certain nuclear retaliation. And the certainty of that nuclear retaliation would be a lot more credible if it was coming from South Korea than if it were to come from the United States. Um, that is, in my view, not a sound theory of, in practice, how we observe deterrence working, uh, right? And, and how even in... Dyadic relationships, uh, dyadic nuclear relationships, uh, how nuclear weapons uh, fundamentally deter. Um, there is also the fact that, you know, I highlighted how South Korea has been investing in conventional deterrence capabilities for a number of years now. Um, much of this debate, I think, uh, can also be interpreted as undermining South Korea's conventional deterrence strategy, right? I think it exhibits considerable anxieties in Seoul about whether its own conventional deterrence capabilities are going to be fit to the task of deterring nuclear use by North Korea, which is publicly what the South Korean government says. Um, but you do see uh, you know, questioning of this idea. For deterrence to work, I think Kim Jong-un has to fundamentally believe that the costs of employing nuclear weapons will outweigh the benefits. Uh, be that you know he will fail to achieve his goals if he uh, chooses to resort to nuclear use, or uh, you know he will be punished. So both deterrence by denial and punishment, I think, are covered there. The ability to impose those costs on Kim does not fundamentally hinge on on nuclear weapons. Uh, there's other components to this debate. Uh, there is uh, you know. A uh, a part of the South Korean debate that hinges on South Korea's uh, growing status in the international system. You know, the world's tenth largest economy, a major military power in its own right, a soft power juggernaut around the world. Why shouldn't a country like South Korea join the club of countries that possess nuclear weapons? That's another part of the argument. On the progressive side of the aisle, uh, you have um, South Koreans who uh, have been skeptical of the U.S presence in the country for a while uh, and do think that an independent South Korean nuclear deterrent would be an act of reasserting South Korean sovereignty uh, and effectively weaning South Korea away from the United States to become a more independent uh, country in its own right. Um, and then on the conservative side, I think there is a, um, a much more, I think, a much greater reliance on this idea that even a nuclear armed South Korea would be able to uh, position itself as a great asset for the United States in the long term in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, And of course, you know, we haven't talked about China so far in this podcast. Uh, That is also lingering in the background. Uh, The nuclear debate in South Korea is not entirely about North Korea. Uh, It is also about resisting uh, coercion uh, in the future from China. Uh, South Korean public opinion, uh, opinions amongst uh, South Korean strategic elites towards China has deteriorated sharply uh, in recent years. South Korea, of course, lived through a direct attempt by China at economic coercion in the aftermath of the deployment of the THAAD missile defense system uh, in early 2017, and uh, the memories of that are still quite raw. And so this idea that a nuclear-armed South Korea would be able to resist coercion from China uh, is also a significant component of the debate. Now, what's left out of a lot of this, I think, is, of course, the details, right? I mean, how would South Korea go nuclear? South Korea does not enrich or reprocess. Um, what would the normative legal economic cost for South Korea be of going nuclear? Um, these, you know, these arguments are often seen in articles written by Americans who, uh, you know, have to point this out, but in the South Korean debates, um, in the op-ed pages, we see a lot of, um, I think optimism about what nuclear weapons would do for South Korea. Um, and the final thing I'll say here, you know, just going back to North Korea for a second. A country like North Korea, that is fundamentally willing to accept uh, significantly greater amounts of risk than South Korea is, and is willing to engage, as we've seen over decades of history, in limited military um, activities uh, across the military demarcation line, the northern limit line, it will be very difficult for a nuclear armed South Korea to effectively deter. Uh, those types of actions. There are a lot of things that North Korea does day to day, month to month, that South Korea finds deeply objectionable, from cyber attacks to missile launches, uh, and yes, like the you know the major incursions that happened in 2010. Uh, it is entirely uncertain that a nuclear armed South Korea would be more effective at deterring those actions. You know, I think a good analogy actually is the dyad we see between India and Pakistan, where India has nuclear weapons, but India is fundamentally less risk-acceptant than Pakistan which maintains a nuclear strategy much more similar to that of North Korea and has, as a result, I think, been willing to push the envelope with conventional military power and subconventional military power uh, against India. And I think with North Korea and South Korea, if we imagine a scenario where both countries have nuclear weapons, uh, I think it's far from clear that um, South Korea's security environment meaningfully improves. In fact, you know, my bottom line on this is that um, I'm deeply sympathetic to the security challenges that South Korea faces. uh, But I sincerely think that even if South Korea acquired nuclear weapons, uh, many of those problems would either go unchanged Uh, or in some cases, I think they would actually become worse.
2: So thus far in our conversation, we've discussed about the concerns um, from South Korea about the credibility of U.S. extended deterrence. And we've also explored multiple perspectives in South Korea on the debate for potentially building nuclear weapons. Now, with Yoon and Biden having met previously last year and meeting again later this month, how has the Benin administration responded to the UN administration's calls for uh, strengthened extended deterrence and what might we expect in the coming months?
0: Sure. So there's been activity along a number of lines. Um, you know, most recently there was a uh, much discussed tabletop exercise in February that simulated alliance operations in the aftermath of North Korean nuclear use, uh, allowing I think South Korea to better understand how the full range of U.S. capabilities uh, would 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 be brought to bear in responding to a contingency like that. Uh, a South Korean delegation visited an American nuclear um, a, a ballistic missile submarine at Kings Bay, Georgia, um, uh, also in February we just had uh, the the kid in Washington DC uh, and and most significantly I think the November 2022 security consultative meeting I think demonstrated that uh, Washington was willing to meet some of the demand signals from the South Korean side on on joint planning uh, information sharing uh, between the two countries uh, with regard to North Korea in new ways uh, and the alliance continuously I think continues to adapt uh, so heading into this uh, state visit um, I think we should expect uh, a major deliverable on extended deterrence. I think uh, it's still uncertain what exactly that will be. Uh, if I had to sort of put down a marker, I wouldn't be shocked if we see uh, if we saw some kind of indication that the U.S. is willing to set up a new kind of nuclear planning, you know, small n, small p, uh, going back to that NATO issue, um, you know, a nuclear planning uh, body uh, with the South Koreans, uh, and potentially even the Japanese, right? There's there's a lot of trilateral coordination that's also happening in Northeast Asia that has been a longstanding U.S. strategic interest in the region. So um, that's what I think, you know, I'd, I'd sort of look out for. Uh, but I, I still think that you know these debates, this sense and soul that extended deterrence is inadequate, uh, I think that is going to persist. Um, even as these uh, new additions are made as the alliance, I think conducts uh, exercises with new levels of intensity, uh, unprecedented types of exercises, uh, the demand signals from South Korea on nuclear reassurance, I think are going to be here with us to stay, uh, especially because I see no signs that the threat environment, on the Korean Peninsula is about to improve. Uh, North Korea, uh, you know, like we discussed at the earlier part of the discussion, is going to test a tactical nuclear weapon. They're going to launch satellites. Uh, they're going to carry out much, um, you know, a, a scaled up missile exercises. So um, there's going to be, I think, ample reason for South Korea to uh, remain fundamentally uh, insecure uh, in this environment. And so I think that will lead to continuing. Uh, dilemmas for the Alliance in terms of how to think about extended deterrence.
2: Anke, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. It was an enlightening discussion.
0: Happy to join you. Thanks for having me.
1: Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins podcast on foreign affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify,
0: subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.